Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Lee Ohanian, who is Professor of Economics and Director of the Macroeconomic Research Program at UCLA. He is also a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and the Associate Director of the Center for the Advanced Study in Economic Efficiency at Arizona State University. He advised to the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and previously has advised other Federal Reserve Banks, foreign central banks, and the National Science Foundation. Welcome, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers entitled Capital Skill Complementarity and Inequality in Macroeconomics, uh, in which you say the supply and price of skilled labor relative to unskilled labor uh, have changed dramatically over the post-war period. The relative quantity of skilled labor has increased substantially, and the skilled premium, which is a weight of skilled labor relative to that of unskilled labor, has grown significantly since 1980. Uh, the paper came out in 2000, Lee. I would imagine these uh, things have gotten even more pronounced in the last 20 years, I would imagine, right? Yes, that's correct. That at the time that paper was published, there were really, you know, the idea about increasing inequality and how highly highly educated people are really moving forward and those without a high level of education struggling. That idea was just really starting around the time that we wrote this paper, uh, but now it really is it's, it's front and center in almost everything we see today, politically, socially, and economically. Yeah, and then there is an accelerating trend uh, through technology. So, you know, there's a lot of talk around uh, artificial intelligence. And I want to get your perspective on this. Um, you know, in some sense, some of the skilled labor, and this is, I'm just throwing this out for uh, for your insights and debate, perhaps. Uh, some of the skilled labor, uh, such as, let's say, accounting, financial advisory services, and so on, I would argue um, they can all be taken up by AI computers. And so what we used to think of, think of as 
is also sort of getting obsolete in the current regime, isn't it? Yeah, so the the paper is kind of interesting history. Um, so if 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 it's okay, I'll I'll, I'll kind of yeah. read together both both what I think might be going on today and what and and what what was the the thesis of that paper. So um, you know, so so back in the nineteen nineties, labor economists were really puzzled about these skill patterns because there was an explosion of people of of new workers who had received four years of college, so who had a bachelor's degree. And with this huge increase in college educated workers, their wages were going up very rapidly. And for those who had not who had not gone to college, their wages were growing very, very slowly. So you have this puzzle, which is from a supply demand perspective, the unskilled workers, their their quantity, their numbers are not growing very quickly because so many people are getting a college education. So from a supply-demand perspective, it was really a puzzle. And labor economists came up with this idea of what they call skill-biased technological change. That is, there was some factor deep within the economy that was expanding the demand for highly educated, highly skilled workers, and that was not equally affecting those without high levels of education. And this appeared to be a bit of a one-off because previous in the history of the United States, as economic as economies grew, it was the rising tide that lifted all boats. So, so everyone seemed to benefit as knowledge and technology advance. But around the 1980s, 1990s, this whatever was going on was really helping those with high levels of education, but not those who didn't have that access. So the paper was about you know first coming up with a name for what labor economists call skill-based technological change. And our theory was that it was this rapid development of highly powered new capital equipment that in our eyes were making highly educated people very, very productive, such as, you know, you give somebody with an MBA, um, high-speed computing, advanced software, the ability, uh, 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 smartphones, all the information technology developments that we've seen over the years. And that really makes them incredibly productive. But at the same time, some of that new capital is taking the place of unskilled workers. So the title of the paper was Capital Skill Complementarity and Inequality. So the idea was this new capital was complementing, it was a complement to highly skilled workers, but it was a substitute for, for unskilled workers. And what we found in that paper is that, um, is that that theory can account for the data remarkably closely. Um, now to kind of come back full circle to, to your questions about today, what I'm doing right now with, um, with uh, uh, one of my PhD students at UCLA and then one of my former PhD students who now works at the Federal Reserve Board, we're re-estimating that model using data uh, from the last 25 years that, that was not, obviously not available when we published, then when I, when I and my co-authors published that paper in 2000. Um, and so what we're finding is that there's a little bit less complementarity between this, these new capital goods and skilled workers, meaning that um, the new capital goods are providing less of a productivity push 
to these highly skilled workers, a little bit less than what we found before. So this is consistent with the idea that, hey, you know, high, you know, these, you know, this new remark, these new remarkable capital goods not only can substitute for unskilled labor or less skilled labor, but they might be able to substitute somewhat for highly skilled labor um, as well, such as in the areas of law, law and accounting, as you mentioned with uh, artificial intelligence. So, yeah, so we'll have to watch this as 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 AI continues to grow and um, and whether that is a substitute for lawyers and physicians and accountants um, or whether that frees them up to use their remarkable minds to be able to do new and different things in which those technologies will again be a complement. So remains to be seen. Yeah, it's an exciting time. Um, so from a technology perspective, Lee, uh, aren't there two things going on? One is you could think of robotics uh, replacing humans um, in the low-skilled area. So, you know, much of the manufacturing that uh, we talk about, uh, you know, nuts and bolts manufacturing, assembly, and so on, uh, increasingly re- humans are replaced by robotics. And then on the top end, as you said, um, AI is uh, is getting into uh, skilled labor too. So both ends of the spectrum appears to be affected by emerging technologies. Yes, exactly, Gil. Um, you know, f- when we think about what's going on with less skilled labor, my favorite example is um, is what's happening with international trade. So you know, if we go back in time to 1950. Um, the world was coming out of World War II. International commerce was just reemerging. Um, there were about 10,000 people who worked in the ports of New York and New Jersey, and these were uh, longshoremen, like you know, big, you know, big, strong guys with with you know, with strong backs. Who, and they would walk onto a ship and they'd pick up a box and then they'd bring the box off the ship and and offload it. And and then when the ship was empty. They would pick boxes, new boxes up, and put them back on the ship, and the ship would sail away. And that was ten. That was, you know, ten thousand longshoremen were involved in those jobs. And today, there's I don't know, maybe instead of ten thousand people working, there's maybe eight hundred people working, and every single one is a college grad operating one of those remarkably sophisticated, you know, cranes you see that picks up um, a you know a twenty or thirty thousand pound container. And takes that off the ship and then puts a new container back on the ship. So we've seen, you know, and at the same time, despite that tenfold drop in the number of people working, the expansion in international trade that's occurred between 1950 and today is like, increased by a factor of 30 or 40. So that's just a remarkable productivity expansion. Um, but that was the case of, of highly skilled workers and machines taking the jobs of low skilled people. And now today, when we talk about AI, um, you know, we, there's, there's pattern recognition software that can, that can look at an MRI imaging um, or a CT scan imaging. And at some point, I don't think it's there yet, but at some point, it'll be able to recognize tumors and abnormalities in, in those images, maybe as well as a radiologist. Uh, so then you say, well, geez, you know, why do we need the radiologist? We can just run these, we can just run the MRI through, 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 through some software and we can get the same reading at a, at a tiny fraction of the cost. 
Yeah, and the beauty of machines is that they don't complain and they can work 24 hours without, uh, <laughs> without being fatigued. Uh, actually, radiology readings, uh, fatigue is a big concern, uh, you know, in, in terms of the effectiveness of humans uh, in that job. So we have, uh, we have similar things. So, so ironically, Lee, I don't know if this is the case, uh, you see high-end jobs affected by AI. You you sort of see the manufacturing sort of lower-end jobs affected by robotics. Will we end up with uh, the, the premium <laughs> to be highest sort of middle? Do you see sort of an inverted U-type <laughs> premium uh, function in the future? Well, you know, it's... Um... Something I'm going to work on at some point. It's it's a big it's, it's a big endeavor, and I need some people to to join me with this. But when we think about technological change and and whether it's it's going to substitute for someone or whether it's going to really complement someone's skills, um, a lot of the literature is just sort of taking that for given and just thought, hey, yeah, okay, well here you know here's a machine that can substitute for an accountant, and here's a machine that can substitute for for a longshoreman, a guy with a strong back who can pick up a lot of weight. Um, but that technology, that the technological change is being directed in some ways. And, um, you know, when you mentioned, hey, you know, <laughs> machine, machines don't complain, you don't need to give them like, you know, lunch breaks and, uh, and worry about disability payments. Um, that That's really prescient what you mentioned, because, you know, robotics was developed, um, a big chunk of it was developed back in the early 1970s in the auto industry. Yeah. Because at that time, um, the you know there's essentially no competition in among among car producers. It was GM and Ford and Chrysler. And GM kind of you know said, "Here's what we're doing," and then Chrysler and Ford followed them. In the late 1960s, that was really before you know, Honda and Nissan and Toyota. You know, there there really were you know hardly any car, any car imports to speak of. And there were always, um, you know, very damaging and very destructive auto strikes where, you know, half a million people would go would go on strike. Um, and it was bad, you know, it was obviously bad for the company, it was, you know, it was bad for the workers, it was bad for the, bad for the economy. So people at GM said, you know, this this is getting out of hand. Um, we're gonna try, and, and there's actually a quote from a GM executive, where, where during a strike where he says, we're going to automate away from workers. Mm -hmm. And so they started developing robotic arms for, uh, you know, for example, uh, paint, painting cars, which now is obviously routinely done. But this was, you know, over 50 years ago. And at that time, the technology just wasn't far enough along. So the, you know, the robots ended up, you know, spraying themselves rather than, rather than painting the cars. But but from the standpoint of what types of high technologies are developed that can either substitute or complement workers, um, you know, there's a reason why there's a reason why people are working on what they work on. And at that time, it was very much to try to move away from labor that was creating problems. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's a that's a fascinating story that that I think needs to be told at a broader level and a deeper level. Yeah, I know that you're involved with the Federal Reserve in Minneapolis and other other uh, Federal Reserve banks. From a policy perspective, what is our sort of current thinking? We know that these things are happening. Uh, it is patchy um, in different industries. It's not uniform, obviously, uh, but it's going to have a significant effect uh, on jobs, uh, on people in general, and, and and more generally on the economy. So. 
do we have some policy direction after observing what's happening? Now, if if we look at the skills, okay. So uh, if if we're going to be labor economists for a second, uh, we'll, and we take a look at what skills are most valued in the marketplace right now, um, and what the market price of those skills are, yeah, there's a big premium on critical thinking, a big premium on creativity, um, a big premium on communication skills. As we continue to grow into a service sector economy all those things will continue to be highly valued. And, you know, the U.S., um, you know, we, uh, we haven't done a great job in um, implementing innovations and new ideas into K through 12 education. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, when I say back in the day, I mean, you know, like 50, you know, 60 years ago, U.S. had by far, best K through 12 education system in the world from the standpoint of, um, of you know, standardized testing. Today, today we're way down on that. Um, there are poor countries where, you know, in which kids do much better in science and math than our kids. So that's something we really have to address. Um, and we think about critical thinking and logical thinking and the ability to combine imagination with the discipline of structured thinking. Um, you know, that's that's hard to do for all of us. Um, I mean, you do that, I do that, but um, you know, for for everybody, some level, no matter how good you are, it's always a bit of a struggle, and that's something that really can be developed, um, you know, early on in childhood. So that so we're not doing a good enough job on that. Um, and from a national education policy point of view, um, I think there are things we can do. Um, you know, sadly, you know, whether it's, um, you know, no child left behind or common core, you know, these policies are, are not being effective um, from the standpoint that, you know, a small number of kids, um, you know, they go on to Harvard and Princeton and Stanford and they're remarkably well prepared. And then there are a bunch of kids who are coming out of, um, you know, there's a story about a year ago, uh, a kid who went through school in San Francisco uh, uh, which has the highest salaries um, in the country within any city. Um, it's ho home to enormous technology presence. And then <laughs> this kid graduated from high school with all Fs. You know, he just kept getting, you know, pushed through and he gets out of high school and he has absolutely really no marketable skills. So there's really a have and have not aspect to education that, that we really need to fix. And I think uh, even at the top end, I think, um, we can we can do better before, you know, before COVID, there was, you know, there wasn't really all that much change in how we were teaching kids, um, you know, in 2000 and in 2019 versus how we were teaching them in 1970. So um, I think we can do a lot there to help them develop structured thinking, logical thinking. Um, it's going to take some policy reforms um, and teachers unions are going to have to be more flexible in terms of um, accommodating um, teacher tenure, which is your know, lifetime employment that, you know, in California can occur, that can occur after a year and a half. Um, and also implementing um, merit-based pay. Most cases, teachers get seniority-based pay. Uh, and implementing uh, pay scales that take into account the idea that if you want to hire a really good math teacher, science teacher, uh, I mean, you got to pay them well because they have a lot of outside opportunities. Um, so the best teachers are incredibly productive and valuable, and, and we should be paying them that way.
Yeah, so that makes so it's really setting the initial conditions. If you miss that, uh, then you know you miss a window. Uh, fixing that at a later time is much more expensive, and so it is really kind of focusing back on education. Uh, just very briefly, Lee, you know, there, there are some uh, some different thinking around that. For instance, um, in the U.S., uh, we have a lot more flexibility in education. Uh, we have liberal arts education, whereas Asian countries tend to be sort of prescriptive and highly focused. Uh, there is some thinking that that actually doesn't improve uh, innovation and creativity. Do you have a view on that? Um, you know, Gil, can you tell just to make sure I understand, could you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I grew up in India, for example, as an example. Um, so, you know, where uh, high school, uh, college level education, you're already sort of selecting which um, which path you're going to go, uh, you know, whether you're going to engineering or medicine or something like that. And, and so you are specializing early uh, and and the the portfolio of subjects or or uh, ideas that you're going to learn uh, is going to be much less diverse. That's a general trend in, in I believe in Asian countries. Whereas in the U.S., I think we have more flexibility, and the portfolio of subjects, at least we we attempt to learn, uh, is broader. Uh, I think, um, yeah. Yeah, two two very different models. Um, and um, and in, Germ in Germany, the 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 model you just described, um, for example, for India, would be similar to what to what's done in Germany and some other European countries. Um, so I, I I I don't know if I think the jury is still out on um, on the future consequences of that. What um, there's a sense in which the model you're describing can be very effective. Uh, and I think being very, very effective when we, um, when we have really a kind of a good idea of where the, of where the child is. So, so, you know, just to use an analogy, if it's the kind of the, you know, if it's the case of it, uh, hey, hey, I'm a vegetarian, then, you know, okay, we know this person's a vegetarian or, hey, I'm a meat eater. We know this person's a meat eater. And I think the challenge is that, um, I think, you know, I mean, my view is that even for kids that early on that are really struggling and maybe have really low test scores, um, it might be just because, you know, we're not reaching them the right way. Um, so, I mean, I've been teaching at the university level, I mean, since 1992. So this is, you know, I've been doing this 28 years. And in that time, um, I've learned so much about teaching and how to get to people, you know, whether they're a college freshman or, or whether, you know, they're a PhD student working on a dissertation, creating new economic knowledge. Um, and every year I do this, I learn more about what it means to reach somebody. And sometimes you have to do different things to reach people. Um, and what I worry about in terms of the model you described is that, um, it could be remarkably productive for some, for some kids, but we might really be missing the boat on some other kids. Um, and, you know, from the standpoint that human beings are incredibly complex and the brain is an amazing organ that, that can do you know, nearly an infinite number of things. Um, if we can learn more about how to reach different types of kids, we might, you know, we might see some breakthroughs of kids that 
that, you know, when the light bulb goes off, you know, I think we all have the ability to have the light bulb go off, go off worse, and then we can figure out which, which direction to go in. Uh, and sometimes it's a matter of, you know, how do we get the light bulb to go off for them? Um, I think we're still learning how to do that. Right, right. Uh, I want to jump into another paper, Lee, which is a different uh, topic altogether. Are Phillips curves useful for forecasting infl- uh, inflation? Um, I, uh, I remember uh, learning about Phillips curves a long time ago, Lee, but I have forgotten all about it. So Phillips curve, you say, is an equation that relates the unemployment rate or some other measure of aggregate economic activity to a measure of, of the inflation rate. And modern specifications of Phillips curve equations relate the current rate of unemployment to future changes in the rate of inflation. So, this is um, this is not a theoretical construct. That this is just an is an empirical observation. Or what, what exactly? How how did the Phillips curve idea start? Yeah, yeah, okay. So in in a nutshell, there's an economist named A. W. Phillips, uh, and and he was he was he lived he was from New Zealand, um, and so uh, you're absolutely right. It's it's not a theoretical concept like like you know the higher the price, the less of the good we demand. Rather, that he just found looking at a scatter plot of data that there is an inverse relationship between the unemployment rate. And um, and uh, how fast wages were changing. So that you know, looking at data from the 1940s and 1950s, he saw low unemployment existed when the rate of nominal wage change, you know, how fast people's salaries are going up, going up, measured in you know dollars. Um, when when wages were going up fast, unemployment was low, and and when unemployment was high, wages were going up slowly. Um, so this was a purely empirical uh, issue, and he became really famous for his called, you know, called the Phillips curve. Yeah. And um, so I, I've, I've been a consultant, uh, you know, within the Federal Reserve System for a long time. Um, and so back, you know, about 20 years ago, uh, one of the guys I was working with, and in fact, um, kind of long story short, he was an economist in the Minneapolis Fed, and I was a consultant there. His name is Andy Atkinson, and, and, and later he joined me at UCLA, so he was at UCLA now. But we started asking, well, you know, it's not really in the data to the extent that people think it is. So we wrote this paper where we just, you know, constructed the same scatter plots where we looked at the inflation rate. We didn't look at nominal wage changes like Phillips did um, because the thing he had morphed into more about just price inflation. So we produced some scatter plots of unemployment and price inflation. We found very little relationship in the data. Um, and then what we did was we compared the Federal Reserve System's uh, forecasts for uh, inflation that were based on this idea about the Phillips curve. So the Fed would say, hey, Unemployment is high right now. Okay, there's very little risk of, of, of future inflation. So that can help us guide monetary policy. We can we can print a lot of money. Or they might, green book or whatever they call it. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry? That's a green book. Green book. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the green, yeah, the green book forecast. Yeah. 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 And, and so what we found is we developed a really simple little forecasting model that just said <laughs> just said inflation four quarters from now is, is going to be about what it is today. So um for, for, for people who are familiar with that, it would be similar to like a random walk uh model right. or, or a martingale. Um and uh, you know, so so we compared the forecast and the one and the ones we came up with were were better on average. 
and we also compared them to some forecasts produced by uh, Jim Scott, who's the, um, um, excuse me, um, Jim Stock, who's an economist at Harvard, um, and Mark Watson, who's an economist at Princeton. They do a lot of work on forecasting macroeconomic data. And uh, and their forecasts were worse as well. So um, so kind of you know so 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 when we 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 wrote this paper, it was a really easy paper to write because there's you know no complicated models or math in it. And so the research director, the Minneapolis Fed, he goes to uh, the Federal Open Market Committee meeting in Washington. So every six weeks, the Federal Reserve meets the Board of Governors uh, in Washington D.C. and then the presidents and the research directors of the regional feds, um, and the Minneapolis Fed is one of those, they all go, they meet every six weeks to talk about monetary policy. So the research director, Art Rawling, says, hey, you know, two, two of my guys have, have written this paper about inflation forecasting the Phillips curve. And, you know, they're, they're finding that there's not much to the idea of the Phillips curve and the data, and the forecasts aren't very good. So, you know, what he, what he told me is that he said, you know, just silence kind of cloaked the room. And, you know, so he presented the statistics. And then pretty much every research department in the Federal Reserve and in the Board of Governors, you know, replicated what we did, which which was easy to do. It was easy to replicate. Um, and uh, and so now, you know, 20 years later, now you see in the you know New York Times or Wall Street Journal, or The Economist magazine, now you're starting to see, you know, kind of broader critiques about a Phillips curve forecasting um, to guide monetary policy. But um, uh, but you know, it hasn't really been in the data for. I mean, we, we, our paper was published 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, and uh, we were looking at data that was from the early 1980s. So, um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, the, I, I guess it's, 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 a, it's a slow moving boat to turn it around, but, uh, I, I, but they're aware of it. Um, um, but, the, you know, those ideas are, are you know, they, they die off. It takes a while for them to die off. Yeah, especially, you know, when you put a name on it, it becomes a tool. It has a life of its own. And uh, I guess, you know, especially in economics, um, people start to use it. And um, and you're not really looking back <laughs> from a uh, from a calibration perspective often. Uh, and so 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 what you're finding, the conclusion of this paper, Lee, I, I think, is that uh, the idea of the Phillips curve, it might have fit. Uh, some set of data early on, but it doesn't really fit any of the data that we we see uh, at least in the contemporary sense, right? No, no. The uh, no. It, and it, yeah, it has this important policy implication, which is if the Fed thinks that oh, if unemployment's high, then we can very safely conduct monetary policy that would otherwise increase inflation, but it won't because unemployment is high. Well, you know, that view, that view is not, that view is very, very misperceived and in, in policymaking, you know, might be dangerous if that, if that, uh, if that road is taken. So, yeah, so it, uh, yeah, but you're absolutely right. Uh, these, these things do die hard. And yeah, once, once the name is associated with them and, and people get, get locked, you know, they kind of get wed to them. It, it takes a while for these ideas to change. Yeah, yeah. We'll take a quick break, Lee. When we come back, uh, we talk a little bit about the Great Depression, the effect of taxes, and one of your uh, latest papers as well. Sounds great. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers 
on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Um, Lee, uh, you have another paper. Um, this is from 2004. Uh, New Deal Policies and the Persistence of the Great Depression, a General Equilibrium Analysis. Um, you say there are two striking aspects of the recovery from the Great Depression in the U.S. The recovery was very weak and the real wages it rose significantly about trend. Uh, you say this data contrasts uh, sharply with the uh, neoclassical theory, which predicts a strong recovery with low real wages. Now, is the was the government uh, was the policy trying to do this specifically, or this was just an outcome of a variety of things that they did? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so um, I'll just I'll just I'll try to be really brief. I'll just take a moment to kind of set yeah. set the stage about this. So, as um, you know, as a kid. Um, you know, my, my grandparents had, had gone through the Great Depression. So I had, uh, you know, so I would, you know, as like any kid, I would ask them, hey, what was life like, you know, for you when you were young and so forth? And, the, you know, there was, they, they both the, my my grandparents on my mom's side, and my dad's side, both, they just really, really struggled economically and, you know, almost lost their home and lost their jobs. And I just thought, you know, how could, you know, how could something like that happen? Because it's a complete one-off. In the Great Depression, we never, you know, we, you know, we had 25% unemployment. Well, you know, before COVID, we had, we had, you know, like three or four percent unemployment. So I just kind of, I thought about, you know, how could that happen? And, and part of that motivated me to go to get a PhD in grad school. And when, and when I was in grad school and I got to the stage of writing a dissertation, I, I told my advisors, "Hey, I, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to write a dissertation about the Great Depression. I'm really trying to, I'd really like to figure that out." And they looked at me. And they said, "No, no, no, you don't want to." <laughs> that's way too risky for a young person to do and they said wait till you have tenure <laughs> and, then, and then you can take you can take that kind of big risk um so kind of fast forward i finished my phd at university of rochester and my first teaching job was um as an assistant professor at the university of pennsylvania and uh, which had a great uh, department um and, and then i was fortunate enough to get an offer to go to university of minnesota which um at that time had the best um, macroeconomics uh, department in the country and so one of my one of my colleagues there was uh, ed prescott and, and ed received the nobel prize um in 2004 so when i got there i said i said you know ed ed what you know what's up with the great depression he goes you know because we need new theory for that it's just it's a one-off <laughs> So, so, so uh, you know, so, so my colleague um, and good friend Hal Cole and I, we started thinking about this and it just, you know, the more we got into it, the more puzzling it looked because after 1933, ev- everything looked like we should, we should be having a kind of a rocket ship recovery. Uh, usually, you know, the farther the economy goes down, the faster it bounces back and, and all the, all the seats were in place. Uh, productivity growth was very, very high. The banking sector had been stabilized uh, by implementing deposit insurance, and the SEC was born at that time. So the financial system was working well, um, and we'd implemented a lot of social safety net programs at that time with unemployment insurance, and Social Security was born at that time. Um, But when you look at the data, uh, and the data I'm going to talk about is the amount of uh, work 
num the number of hours worked being done in the market divided by the working age population. So that's the measure of work I'm going to think about. Total hours of work divided by the working age population. Um, that was lower in 1937 than it was in 1932. <laughs> so there was there was really there was no recovery in hours worked. So we just thought, well, why not? You know, so you think about people want to work. You know, they're they're hungry. They want to pay the rent and, and they want to buy food for their families and and businesses want to make a profit. So what's standing in the way of that? So so the 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 paper is about something called the National Industrial Recovery Act. And uh, what was really cool about that, it, it was devastating for the economy, but from the standpoint of research is really striking because at that time, people thought about economics totally differently. They thought competition was a bad thing. Um, and this policy called the National Industrial Recovery Act was essentially full-scale cartelization and collusion of the non-farm US economy. And so what this amounted to was that every industry, and there were over 500 of them, ranging from the women's hosiery industry to autos. And the idea was were for producers to get together and set prices. The Sherman and Clayton Antitrust Acts were abandoned. You know, th those were all about, hey, you're not supposed to set prices. So Roosevelt, FDR, and his advisors had this idea that, gosh, if we could just get prices up, then we'd have a recovery. Well, how do you get prices up? Well, okay, they, they tried to do that through collusion. So the idea was producers were able to collude and set a high price provided that they raised the wages of their workers. So that was the deal. And so that was the policy. And from today's standpoint, we say, hey, you know what? Implementing monopoly is not a good idea if you wanna expand employment and output. And then setting wages way above the competitive level, um, well, that's going to limit the number of people you're going to hire because. But yeah, so so they were trying to really fight deflation that way. That was uh, that was. Yeah, the they were trying. To, they were yeah. They they were trying to fight deflation. They thought if we could just get prices up and wages up, you know, hey, we'll have a we'll have a great we'll have a great economy. And um, hmm. and you know the what what made them. What made them think about this was that um, they went back to kind of wartime logic. So they thought, you know, hey, the, the government managed the economy during World War One, and and you know the World War One economy is okay. So the government can take over managing the economy now during peacetime when we should we should get a good outcome. So the government's going to step in, and we're going to we're going to artificially raise prices and artificially raise wages. And there was a real confusion um, about what causes what. And sadly, this was a disaster for the economy and that you know, millions of people wanted to get work, but wages were set way too high and prices were set way too high. And at the end of the day, prices were sufficiently high that consumers didn't want to buy a lot of stuff. And when consumers don't want to buy a lot of stuff, the producer's not going to expand investment or hiring new workers. So it was, um, it was an economic disaster. Well, and, and so, so this is, seems sort of simplistic in the sense that, uh, you know, to imagine uh, fighting deflation by just setting prices at a higher level and then hope that everything is going to fall into place uh, seems 
seems reasonably naive, right? That that that's all they were thinking. That's about ninety five percent of it. Yeah, yeah. They just thought, oh, you know, inflation, uh, deflate. This deflation is destructive, and they ended they ended deflation. You know, deflation ended after yeah. Roosevelt took office, and there was probably you know there's about two percent. And the price level jumped, and there's about two percent inflation after that. And interestingly enough, Roosevelt made a speech in um, it was either 37 or 38, where he said he basically said we made a mistake. He said the economy's become a cartel system, and right around that time, those policies began changing. And right about that time, we started having a recovery around 1939 and 1940 because. We stopped promoting cartels and collusion. And uh, once we got to World War II, uh, there's this common view that the big increase in government spending is what brought the economy out of the Great Depression that had just persisted. Well, one untold story about that is that Roosevelt essentially pulled the rug out under from unions. So the NIRA was all about pushing wages up. Um, it gets declared unconstitutional. It was so unpopular. It gets declared unconstitutional in 1935. But it was de facto continued in that the government didn't pursue any antitrust. They basically turned a blind eye to collusion in 1935. And um, the National Labor Relations Act was upheld at that same time. Um, and wages jumped even more. So when we get to about 1942, the National War Labor Board comes along and Roosevelt has a meeting with um, the heads of all the major unions. And they and he and he says, you know, we have to expand production. I, I want to have a no strike commitment from you. And they said, sure. Well, do we still get collectively bargaining? And he said, yeah, you can collectively bargain. Uh, that's fine. But I but I don't want to I don't want to see any strikes. They said, OK, no problem. So about six months later, Bethlehem Steel um, uh, announces um, a very high wage increase with their steel workers. Uh, and the National War Labor Board strikes it down and said, nope, no wage increases beyond cost of living. And then the unions come back to Roosevelt and they're really upset. And they said, well, you said we could collectively bargain. And he said, well, yeah, of course. But, you know, there's National War Labor Board. I can't, I can't, I can't interfere with their decisions. Um, so uh, interesting enough, um, you know, kind of cut to the chase by 1948, the relationship between wages and productivity uh, was back to its level that it was in, 19, in, the, in the 1920s. Um, and in the 1930s, wages relative to productivity were super high. So when you mentioned, you know, isn't this implicit? Yeah, it was because what's relevant is the wage relative to worker productivity. And the policies drove wages relative to productivity about 20% above where they should have been. And as a consequence, you know, we didn't solve the, the unemployment problem. Yeah, so did it have, you know, the 33-37 the uh, disaster time, uh, did did those policies have some sort of long-term societal effects, Lee? You know, I am thinking, um, you know, people who had jobs, it, it's almost creating a class system, right? High unemployment, but those with jobs are doing uh, better, uh, and collusion, cartel-like systems, so labor losing power, capital getting higher returns, did it, did it really have a sort of a, a permanent effect on society? 
You're absolutely right. It definitely created a class system because those who had jobs, they felt so lucky that they had them because they were they were earning a good salary. And at the same time, they're, they're looking out the window and seeing a line of workers outside the door saying, you know, with writing applications, just thinking, you know, for the grace of God, for the, for the grace of God, I'm sitting here with a job and, and those guys don't have them. Um, so when we think about inequality, that was a horrible time for inequality, uh, and it was really policy policy induced. And when we think, when we sort of you know move forward, uh, you know, out of the war, the 1950s were a time where there's a lot of economic growth, and you know, going back to our discussion about um, about low skill labor and, and their economic success. That was a time when, if you know, you could have a high school, you could you could be a high school graduate, or maybe not even be a high school graduate, but you could have one of these really good jobs in um, at U.S. Steel or GM or Ford or Union Carbide, and getting good benefits and getting good salaries, um, and you were able to do that because you faced no competition. And then as the world became more globalized and trade barriers came down and suddenly steel has to compete with foreign steel and GM has to compete with Honda and Toyota, um, kind of the jig was up. And when we think about, um, you know, those were the days when, uh, and I've read, you know, I've, I've read some, you know, so, some, uh, some books written by people who lived in Pittsburgh when it was, you know, it was this big steel town or lived in Detroit when that was flourishing. And they would say, you know, we kind of knew that this was going to end. It was just too good to be true. And now you look at Pittsburgh, and it's, you know, it's it's the third of it's, it's the third of its former size, and Detroit's a third or a quarter of its former size. Um, so this morphed into an economy where we just couldn't sustain the type of compensation that was being delivered to people who who may not have had the education trained to be able to compete in today's world. And um, and we're kind of seeing the remnants of that now, which is why, which I, why I think it's so important to really try to implement uh, K through 12 reforms and try to boost everybody up to get to a point where they can be competitive. Yeah, I mean, the, the good good part of doing bad things is that uh, we can learn from it hopefully yeah yeah exactly we you know we yeah we still we still face some we still face some headwinds uh, in those challenges but um but you know for example one interesting aspect here in california um uh a fellow named marshall tuck um campaigned as you know for state school superintendent he had some really interesting ideas. Um, specialist base pay, the idea that you pay math teachers really well if it's hard to hire a good math teacher. Uh, merit based pay, um, modest reforms to teacher tenure, continued teacher training, um, pay premiums to teachers and administrators in poor school areas. Um, and um, he came really close to winning. It was interesting. It was two Democratic, um, both people who ran for that office were both uh, Democrats. Um, and Tuck had a lot of money from school reformers, um, and he lost by maybe one percentage point. So I think the ideas are starting to get there. So yeah, I think we are learning from learning from this. Yeah, yeah. I want to touch on one other paper, Ali. So long-term changes in labor supply and taxes, evidence from OECD countries. You're looking at uh, a, a, a large set of data here, 1956 through 2004. A lot of different countries. So, say we document large differences in trend changes in hours worked across OECD countries between '56 and 2004. So, you are you're equating the the change in hours to tax policies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, 
so when I did this paper, um, and it was, and I did this with one of my former students, PhD students at UCLA, and um, who Andrea Roth is now at the Federal Reserve Board, and Richard Rogerson, who teaches at Princeton. Uh, we looked at data. Um, across countries and over time and within countries that are part of the OECD. So the OECD is, um, is, uh, it's, it's a group of um, peer, kind of advanced or developed peer countries, um, organization yeah. of economic cooperation and development. So the idea is that they, that they try to, they try to develop policies that are integrative and, and, you know, promote economic, economic welfare and well-being. So this is, U.S., Canada, Western Northern Europe, um, uh, East Asia, such as uh, Japan and South Korea, uh, Australia, New Zealand. So we looked at data on, you know, all the, you know, this large group of countries over time, and we found two striking patterns. One is that um, Western Europe countries, Germany, France, Northern, uh, Finland, Sweden, these were countries that worked just an enormous amount back in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, about 1,400 hours per adult per year. And that's just remarkable when you take into account 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year is 2,000 hours. And Germany, they were working 1,400 hours per person per week, but you know, a lot of adults are not working there, take, they're, they're at home taking care of kids or, or doing other things. Um, and then, you know, Germany, their hours work per adults fallen, you know, 35 or 40%. And the same for France and the same for Italy, the same for all these European countries. Um, and they had enormous increases in tax rates. And then you look at the US or Canada um, or New Zealand, and the amount of hours worked per adult was pretty stable. And they didn't have big changes in tax rates. So we developed an economic model to try to quantify the importance of changes in taxes. And we complemented that with a lot of regressions. Um, and what we found is that tax, the big increase in taxes that occurred in Europe, and when I say big increase in taxes, I mean a tax rate that went from about 20 8% in the 1950s to about 50% by the 1980s and 1990s. So a big increase in taxes. And we found that that could quantitatively count for much of the decline in how much market work was being done in Europe. Um, and we even had some really cool, um, uh, you know, as a couple of countries decided that, hey, you know, we've lost so much work, we're gonna reform taxes, we're gonna reduce tax rates. And, uh, and then we see, we see hours worked expanding uh, in those countries in the data and, and the model gets the expansion as well. Um, and that, uh, you know, when we first published that, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, you know, it's, not, it's not taxes, you know, the Europeans work less because you know, they, you know, they, they like the good life. They like sitting in cafes, <laughs> you know, or, 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 you know, sipping a glass of wine, uh, you know, by the, by the Seine river. And, um, uh, and so then I tell them, well, well, no, they used to work even more than us. And then, you know, then there would just be, you know, silence in the, in the seminar room. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is, um, uh, yeah, this is one of my most highly cited papers and it, um, yeah, it's taught in a lot of PhD, 
classes because it is provocative um, and it's you know quantitatively it seems to to do the job. So the punchline is that that high tax rates um, do seem to matter quite a bit. And uh, and if you and if you think about European economies, people have pointed to uh, problems. You know, a nickname is uh, that's been around for a long time is called Eurosclerosis. You know, the idea that those economies are stagnant. Um, and they're not growing very fast, and their best people want want to leave. Um, entrepreneurship is low, job creation is low. Well, in our view, taxes are one reason why that's the case. So, is it is it as simple as um, intuitionally that when taxes are higher, um, leisure becomes essentially more attractive, so people don't. Uh, people just kind of substituting away from from working in Asia. Yep, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and you know, we're measuring market work, and what is going on is, yeah. I think they're probably not just not just sitting having a having a coffee, but they're probably doing kind of under the radar stuff. So um, you know, I fix your sink. And and you help me with my accounting books, um, and then you know we kind of say, okay, we're even on that, and we avoid the government, we avoid the government being our silent partner, um, and that obviously is a huge measurement challenge. But um, but to the best, you know, the economists who study that, you know, they indicate that yeah, it looks like there's a lot more underground economic activity going on in those European countries. Um, than there is the United States or Canada. So, so I want to finish up with your your latest paper that just came out, um, tarnishing the golden and empire states, land use restrictions, and the U.S. economic slowdown. So, so you're looking at New York and California and some of the land use restrictions put on both of these states and how that might affect um, economic activity in those states. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of interest um, in the idea that housing prices uh, become so high in the United States, particularly in areas such as California, particularly the California coast, um, you know, New York City. A lot of a lot of commercial hubs. Uh, well, there's a lot of economic activity going on. So in California, this would include Silicon Valley and San Francisco and LA and San Diego, and then obviously um, New York City. Um, so this paper uh, uses data on the price of housing and how many workers there are per state and how productive those workers are in each state. And that data gets run through an economic model that spits out how severe regulations are that make housing expensive or impede the construction of housing. And uh, you know what we find is that California and New York in particular have imposed very stringent housing regulations. Uh, and this includes things like zoning. This includes um, the application of local environmental laws um, that may not, that the people who the people bring lawsuits based on environmental reasons, when sometimes those lawsuits might have more to do with you know not in my backyard, or hey if there's going to be a big development down the street for me I you know, I want to get something out of that, um, and we find that economic activity uh, that if we could roll those regulations back to say what they were in 1990. Um, 
Or alternatively, we look at a counterfactual of rolling those regulations back to what Texas does. Texas is relatively unregulated and unrestricted in terms of land use. And what we find is that it would make a lot, it would make a big difference. Real GDP would be much, much higher. Uh, and California and New York would be much, much larger if we did that. Yeah, so if I understand this correctly, Lee, so, you know, suppose, you know, we internalize all environmental costs and, and suppose the New York, California policies are, let's say, for argument's sake, optimum from that, from that viewpoint. It doesn't really matter unless we have a consistent policy across the country, right? Because, you know, ultimately, if, if two states do it, uh, the 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 outcome is going to be businesses are just going to move out to some other state and we will have the same uh, aggregate negative effect. On yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly perfect economic reasoning. Um, and if we take that a little bit more broadly, um, that's also the reason why states should be somewhat consistent in how they try to attract business or more, more broadly. Um, because we don't want to have kind of a beggar, a beggar thy neighbor type policy. Um, so that's exactly right. National standards would be the way to go here because, um, you know, like for example, in California, um, we're losing jobs and businesses that are leaving because it's very costly to do business here. Not just land use regulations, but also state taxes. Um, Tesla just announced they were leaving. Um, Hewlett Packard, uh, you know, which was one of the founders of Silicon Valley, ironically, Hewlett Packard is leaving and they're, and they're all going to Texas where, um, you know, there's no state income tax, um, business regulations are low, cost of living is low. Um, my oldest son is thinking of buying a house, um, just outside Dallas and, and, you know, he's looking at a, you know, four bedroom, three bath house that, that, that would cost, you know, five times as much if you were to buy it here in California. So that's a great point you make. Um, we really need to have national standards and states need to cooperate. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in conclusion, Lee, uh, is that possible for us given the, the federal system that we have, um, you know, again, looking forward five years, 10 years, um, given that, as you said, national policy is, is only only thing that's going to be optimum. We actually see the same thing in the COVID <laughs> situation. Um, asking and, and other other things are done by one state or two, it doesn't necessarily help because we don't have borders, uh, you know, at state borders. And so, so the so what are our chances to affect national policies along these lines? Yeah, you, know, you asked a great question. It's really difficult because we do have we do have the fifty states, and there would have to be a general recognition among those states that hey, you know, the right thing to do is to cooperate. Of course, the challenge is here in California, <laughs> the top tax rate is 13%. In Texas, it's, it's zero. So uh, um, we can dream that, that we, we can dream that this could happen. Um, maybe a more realistic dream would be that, that California wakes up and decides that, you know, our regulations and taxes and including land use restrictions are just way too onerous and we need to become more competitive. Um, 
And I suspect that probably will happen at some point. Um, so I think we can maybe hopefully I think we can hope we can move the needle a little bit. Uh, I, I doubt we'll ever be able to kind of get everybody on the same page. I, I wish we could, but um, but I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think that's the case. Um, yeah, I mean the the bad part of this also is sort of the tactical issues like the the pandemic that we are dealing with, right? We again we don't have national policies. Even in the case of a pandemic, we can defect national policies. Uh, we can't really slow down the spread of the disease either. No, that's exactly right, because, you know, states will rightly point to issues that make them different. So they can say, you know what, we're we don't have the landmass that Texas has or our industry. We have a different industrial mix than Delaware. And they can point to a lot of individual differences in in what goes on in their states that realistically can lead them to have different preferences for different policies. And yes, sadly, we had um, you know some states have larger elderly populations than others, and those states suffered more from the pandemic. So yeah, it's 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 definitely a challenge, and it would need very strong and comprehensive leadership at the federal level, I think, to get a hope to make that happen. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Lee. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yo, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate Thank it. You. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.